Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 16 through 32. I call this message bad trade. Bad trade. So let me read it, our our section, and then we will look at some uh, points that I think we should consider. We'll look at what Paul is teaching us and what the Lord is teaching us through Paul. Starting in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Bad trade. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, bad trade, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Bad trade. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let me pray for us this morning. Oh Lord, we need you to open our hearts to believe and perceive what you have for us here in Romans 1. May it be clearly taught this morning. May I please say exactly Uh, what is being taught here and influence hearts and minds to obedience to you, worship of you, repentance of sin, if that needs to happen too. I pray that you just bless this time. I pray that hearts are ready to receive your word. And I pray that I would be faithful in communicating it. Attend to us here this morning, we pray. Feed us by your word. We need it. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You can have a seat. A few of you stood. So I entitled this message, Bad Trade, and I highlighted what I was thinking of when I read the portion of scripture we're looking at. Man has made some bad trades. 
So Paul is writing to the Romans, starts off with an introduction, then he ends up in verse 16 with the summary statement of what he's going to be talking about, the gospel. And he starts off by saying, I'm not ashamed of it. I thought that was a really strange way to open up an opening letter. I thought, is that how it introduced my wife? This is my wife, Julie. I'm not ashamed of her. No, that's probably not the best introduction. But Paul starts off that way. He's not ashamed of the gospel. There is no shame in the gospel. Well, why even talk about shame? Well, he's going to dive into shame. Starting in verse 17, or I'm sorry, verse 18, he's going to dive into shame where we started off in Adam and he's describing our, our state before God. So he starts off where, where I'm starting off and what we're going to talk about are these bad trades that we have made in our life and societies make them because individuals make them and they influence our lives and they influence the course of even society. Now, this message that Paul is talking about was no less unpopular in the day it was written than it is today. The Romans were very Roman. We are very Roman. One, uh, one commentator talked about 1 Corinthians. He called it First Californians. We are very much like the Romans. So Paul is meeting us even where we are today and where we can even find ourselves in our own lives at times and certainly where we found ourselves before Christ. So we want to look at these bad trades and look at some of the consequences of them, the conclusion that people come up with. And uh, we're going to look at God's righteous retribution. And then we're going to talk about our response today as Christians. So let's talk about these bad trades. First, they exchanged God's glory for images. Verses 18 through 23. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Just stop there for a second. You really, before you start trading off God, you really have to start with suppressing the truth. I don't know if any of you like backpacking, but the best illustration I can think of with suppressing the truth is, you know, you got to get your backpack tight, right? You got to have that, that your, your sleeping bag is, usually ends up taking a spot like this big because you pack that thing tight. That's what they're doing with the truth. They're trying to pack it down into something small so they can throw it up in the attic of their mind and not think about it. Get it out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. So they're suppressing the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God is intimately involved in showing people who he is. It's plain. This isn't the deist God. This isn't God didn't wind up the earth so it's evident. No, he's personally involved. He has shown it to them. So what do they do? Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and animals and creeping things, idolatry. Bad trade. We see this, by the way, what's so interesting about idolatry 
I think a wonderful example for us to remember are the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. You guys remember what happened? They get to Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Decalogue. He's, he's hearing from God. He's having conversations with God. And the people are beginning to grumble. Whoa, Moses has gone a long time. What's going on? So what do they do? They make an image of an animal. But here's what's interesting. What do they name the animal? Do you guys remember? They name him Yahweh. They name him God. They say, behold, the God who delivered you from Egypt. This is the God that split the Red Sea. This is the God who's taking you. That is the tricky part of sin and exchanging the glory of God for an image. They don't change the name. They keep the name. They keep the name because there's glory in the name. There's glory in what God has done. But they exchange it. It's a bad trade. Secondly, when you're moving away from God and you're beginning to attribute things that God has done to idols in your life, money, heroes, baseball players, football, I don't know who your idols are. You begin to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Let's look at this, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. They wanted these things to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It's really fascinating how we get an appetite for lies. And we will change, we will exchange truth for untruth. Why do we do that? It's really interesting. Psychologists have identified that that people have a running narrative in their brains and it's, it's pretty much trying to make sense of the world and it's basically a lie. And they're trying to understand it evolutionarily, like why, why does this happen? And it's because people can't make sense of the world so they just make up a fiction in their brain. And it just, it's just this running fiction. And you hear this when people talk about why maybe their relationships broke down or why they left a job or why they were fired. And there's always some story behind it, right? Ah, they were jerks at that place. I don't know. Ah, she was crazy. Right? There's always some excuse, right? That's the lie. We exchange truth for a lie. And specifically, this is true about God. God's revealing himself to us, but nah, we don't want that. No, that doesn't fit with my narrative. That doesn't fit with what jives with me. That doesn't fit with my self-authentication. Whatever it is that we are opposed to what God is revealing about himself, we just flip the script. Let's start believing a lie. You hear this all the time. Well, you know what God is to me? I don't care what God is to you. I don't. And not because I don't care about you, but because I want the God of the Bible. I want the true God. If he doesn't exist, then if it's just something that means to you, then we're just flotsam and jetsam, just, just bumping into each other. Who cares? It, it really leads to, to nihilism. No, we need the truth about God. Peace, if possible, truth at all costs. Because truth brings peace. It brings peace. We do this in our daily lives as Christians. We will make up stuff about God. 
we'll justify our sin. Oh, God wants me to be happy, or, you know, I was in a toxic relationship, so, you know, God, God told me to get divorced. Nah, I don't think so. I think God told you to work it out. That doesn't mean there's not time and place for divorce. The Bible talks about that, right? You've been abandoned. They've been sexually unfaithful to you. There's times for that. But we just, we just go with whatever we think. Whatever, we, whatever pops into our little harebrained idea about what God thinks and is okay, we just, we just run with it. No, it's a bad trade. It's, it, this is hard. It's hard for me. I'm not telling you, as one of my professors at college would say, I'm not trafficking an unexperienced truth. This is hard. The word confronts me where I am and where I'm lying to myself about who God is. That's why we have to keep digging into the word. Keep, keep un, uncovering where maybe we're thinking poorly about God, where we're believing those lies. But this is the state where unbelievers find themselves. They will believe anything and everything besides what the scriptures say about God. And this was you. This was me. So you can't exchange God's glory without eventually exchanging the truth, without exchanging just a natural order. That's the third exchange. They exchanged natural sexual desires for unnatural, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. This is, as MacArthur said, there's a sexual revolution and then there's a homosexual revolution. This is the, this is the slide of society. When you are abandoning God, this is the slide. I don't think he's right. No, I'm kidding. He's absolutely right. We're seeing it in our society, are we not? Absolutely. And we love those people. We don't hate those people. We love those people. They are caught in a, they, they are on the precipice of facing God for all eternity. And they're sliding down the slope. And, and it's not that we're saying that to them because we disown them or we hate them. We're, we're calling to them to say, no, believe the truth. Come to God. Flee to Christ. So men and women have these thoughts just rolling around in their heads. They're lost. They're blind, as the Bible says. They're dead. They can't perceive or understand the things of God. And they make all these bad trades. They're exchanging what God has for lesser things. You see, so when we preach the truth, when we preach the gospel, it's not that we're trying to take them away from good things to becoming something less. No, we're trying to take them away from bad things to the best thing, God himself. But as we go down this slide, as society goes down this slide, as individuals go down this downward slide and they're making these trades and they're exchanging things about God, his, his glory, his truth, his natural order, they come to a woeful conclusion. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, I think it may be a better 
rendition of that in the Greek is they do not approve of God in their knowledge. I think the way it's worded is good too, but the reason why I want to word it that way is because Paul later, and we're going to get there, is going to show how God is also judging them. Their woeful conclusion is God is disapproved. He is standing in the way of what I want to do. He is a roadblock to my self-fulfillment. So he must go. He is not approved in my thinking. He is disapproved. This is the mind that is warped by sin. This is the mind that is degraded by sin. This is the soul that is hurting. This is the soul that is dead to God. It's a woeful conclusion to disapprove of God. Now listen, this woeful conclusion... All of this has sorrowful consequences from the Lord. God is not passive in this. As, as I mentioned earlier, we don't believe in deism. Deism is that God kind of wound up the earth. He put it into motion and he steps away from it. And whatever happens, happens. I'll pause while the plane goes by. No, God is intimately involved in what happens even now, on this earth, with us. And there are consequences to this. Not just sowing and reaping consequences. This is God-ordained and intimately involved consequences. Let's look at his consequences. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. What's the first thing he gave them up to? To impurity. Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The first sorrowful consequence that we see as man is disapproving of God, as man is exchanging God's truth, these things, he gives them up. Okay. You don't want me? I'm going to give you over to something. And the first thing he gives them up to here that we see in verse 24 is he gives them up to impurity. Just dirtiness, general uncleanness. This especially has to do with sexual impurity. And I want to tell you something. We we can't even comprehend how perverted it was in Rome. The only thing that I think makes what we do worse right now is we have ways of getting it out into the general public that they didn't have. But it was everywhere, and it was a lot worse than it is even now. Incredibly worse. And children are present, so I'm not going to talk about it. You can go study that yourself. But it was, it was nasty. Second, God gives them up to dishonorable passions in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And we see this. Again, there's that sexual revolution and the homosexual revolution. That's what... Paul is talking about here what the Lord is teaching us here. They're given over to it. If you seek to dishonor the Lord, to, to exclude God from your thinking, to delete any reference to him in your heart and mind, you will be given over according to what he says here in Romans. 
There is a giving over of God to sin. That's terrifying. And last, where we, where we started with the woeful conclusion, God gave them up to a broken mind. Let's read verse 28 again. And since they did not see fit or they did not approve of God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I want to pause there for a second. There's, the reason why I like that approved idea is in the Greek, it's really clear. And not that you have to know Greek, you can use other you know, tools, Bible Hub or whatever, but it's really fascinating. It says, they sought to disapprove of God. They did not approve of God in their thinking. Therefore, God gave them an unapproved mind. That's the analogy that's going on here. You don't approve of what I'm saying? You don't, you don't think I should be in your thinking? But here's a mind that doesn't work. Here's an unapproved mind. Didn't pass inspection. Didn't pass quality control. So what's the point of this? Well, the point is, this is our fifth point. It is a righteous retribution that God is doing. You and I deserved this. And notice it's God's response to sin. God isn't compelling them to sin. They have already sinned and God in response to that is taking them further down that path. Let's look at this, righteous retribution. Verse 24, just write this down. Therefore, verse 25, because, verse 28, since God's response is in, God's judgment is in response to sin. God is not compelling these people to sin. God is not forcing them to sin. But here's the scary part. When you choose to harden your heart like Pharaoh, you remember Pharaoh? He, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We need to be very aware that God in judgment can harden hearts and send people further down this path. It is in response to people's sin that God will judge in this way. This is what Romans 1 is telling us. Verse 32 Look at the very end, or yeah, the very end of our, of our passage. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's amazing. They're going further and further down the path, and as they're doing, they're like, yeah, I'd vote for that. Yeah, that's good. Yep, right on, do more of it. I'm no quitter. That's what people say about alcoholism as a joke. I'm not going to quit drinking. I'm no quitter. They approve of it. It's funny. Here's what we need to understand from this. God shows, he's showing us right here in this passage that he is sovereign over every aspect of these people's lives. But here's what's interesting. I want you to note, believer. He is not violating their will. They desire these things. They are choosing these things. So he's not violating their will, giving them further and further over to sin. 
The sinner's will and desires are not violated by God's judgment. It's what they want. So why no shame in the gospel? Why start there? Well, because Christ in the gospel never lets you down. Christ never fails you. You see, sin fails you. We're looking at Romans 1. What are the results? What did these people get from what they were pursuing? Nothing good. See, there's no shame in the gospel because there's only good that God promises us from the gospel. Flip over to Romans 6. Look at this. this I, we went over this with the college group at uh, our church on Thursday. And it's just so encouraging to me for us to think about. Sin fails you. Read verse 21 of Romans 6. But what fruit were you getting at that time in Romans chapter 1 from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Note, fruit, time, ashamed, death. That's what sin brings to us. It's a fruitfulness. The, the illustration I was thinking of is when you're into sin, you're eating horse apples, not apples. And we're filling our bellies on it. But it's not that good. But we tell ourselves it's good. I don't care if they're candied horse apples. How much horse apple needs to be in there for you to want to eat it? Zero. I don't want any of it. Sin fails you. It never promises what it delivers. It always debases you. It always makes you go down. Always. Shame. The, the fruit of it is shame. The fruit of it is ultimately death. And notice the time. It's so fascinating. He's having them consider their lives now. What are you getting from it now? What are you even getting from sin now? And the answer is nothing. You're not getting anything from it. But notice that Christ never fails you. The gospel never fails you in verse 22. But now, see now, again, a time frame. Now, right now, where are you living? Right here. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the fruit, the real fruit, these are real apples now. The real fruit that you're getting leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You can actually start to be cleansed today from Romans 1 living. Let's jump back to Romans 1. What's the fruit you get today when you come to Christ? Good things. Sin never provides good things. So verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I don't know if any of you are Jewish, but you need to believe the gospel. In the Greeks, that's the rest of us. We need to believe the gospel. That's where the power of God is. The power of God is not in us trying or attempting or striving or reaching. The power of God is in the gospel and what he has done for you through Christ alone.
So I, I hope and I believe better things of you than I, we read in Romans 1. I think some of you maybe, and me included, were in Romans 1, right, before Christ. So I think there is some application for us from Romans 1 that we need to consider as Christians. See, what do we need from the Lord in our day? Because we're living in Romans 1. And what does the world need from you today? What does your neighbor need from you today? We as the church, you as the church, need to speak these truths boldly in and to this generation. We need to not cave on what Romans 1 says about the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, the truth of human sexuality, the truth of idolatry. We need to not cave on those things. We need to be bold about those things. The generation, this generation needs it. Listen, it is understandable to be fearful. There's a wave, a tidal wave of sentiment against Romans 1, isn't there in our culture right now? And I feel intimidated at times. Do you not feel intimidated at times? If you don't, I don't think you're listening. I mean, they have captured the culture. But you can shine brightest right now. It is understandable to be fearful, but listen, that's not uncommon. Don't be ashamed because you feel fear. I feel fear about this too. We all do. It's okay. Look, this is what our response should be. Flip over to Acts chapter 4. This passage encourages me a lot. One of my favorite testimonies from uh, the Reformation era, I think it was Reformation era, they caught a guy. They said, listen, you're, you're not to be preaching Christ alone, faith alone. No, don't do that. Or we're going to burn you at the stake. He said, okay, I won't preach that anymore. He caved. <laughs> he caved. Why? Because he was fearful. But I love that testimony because the next day he said, nah, I recant my recanting. <laughs> and then they burned him. But listen, we, it's okay to be scared. Life is hard. We have responsibilities. We have people depending upon us. It's difficult. We understand. God understands. He knows where you are. He knows that you're just a little, a little tender shoot. He knows you're not a big, strong oak. He gets it. Christ is the big, strong oak. Listen to this. Romans, or Acts chapter 4, and let's read 23 through 31. This is so good. So Paul, or is it Peter and Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas? Peter and John, sorry. Peter and John are told, hey, don't preach to Christ anymore. Stop it. And then they beat him, and then they let him go. Now, I don't know, but if here in Santa Rosa, they dragged me out of here and beat me <laughs> for preaching and then sent me home, I'd be a little tender. I'd be a little skittish. Listen to how the believers respond. Verse 23. When they were released, this is Peter and John, right? Peter and John. Uh, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. And when they heard it, 
This is the crowd now, the people, the friends. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They're recounting everything that God did. <laughs> so amazing. To do what, like, as if God doesn't remember. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. All of that was by God's plan. Christ crucified, all of that. And now, Lord, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and take their threats away. Is that what it says? And stop their threats. No, what does it pray for? It says, and give and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's what we need, church. Remember, that is what we need. We need boldness in this day and age. And when you are praying for boldness, you're not a weak Christian. You're like every other Christian that's ever been. They were fearful too. It's okay to be fearful. Pray for the grace to be bold and to continue to speak the truth. One last point I want to think about as we close. Christ is called the great physician. And one of the things that's interesting about physicians, and one of the things we apply to Christ, I believe, at times, is we think about the fact that Christ healed. We think about his healing ministry. And healing is what physicians do. But that's actually a small part of what physicians do. The main thing that physicians do is they diagnose you well. That's where the real heavy lifting is. And what I want to see from Romans 1 is that Christ is giving us a true and good diagnosis of who we are apart from him. We need the true physician, the great physician Christ, to give us a good diagnostic test of our souls. And it's right here in God's word. You can see the problems. This is what Paul talks about using the law lawfully. He talks about that in Romans. And what that means is the law convicts us where we're weak. Romans 1 should also convict us where we're weak. And I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian... You're a PA. You're a physician's assistant. All right? That's what we need boldness for. We're not going out trying to bludgeon people over the head, telling them they're going to hell. We, want, we warn them that they are going to hell, but we're a physician's assistant. We want them to know what's wrong so that <laughs> we have a cure. The cure is Christ, and we have it. We have that cure. We go to the world with boldness, not because we're foolhardy, not because we hate them, but because we have the life-giving message that they need. And by God's grace, we will rescue some. By God's grace, we will be integral in drawing some to himself, some to Christ. You, even you, scared little Christian, <laughs> even you can be used by God to bring people into the kingdom. So be that physician's assistant this week. Let me pray for us. As well, we close. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your son diagnoses our hearts 
so well through the word and through his life and ministry. I, I remember thinking how angry I was with Jesus at, at certain times that he just lived such a perfect life that I am so unable to live. And I was just overwhelmed by that thinking because even his life is a diagnosis of our lives that we do not live like we should. And your word shows us where we've gone astray. And I pray that if there was anyone struggling with these things here this morning, that by your grace, that you would call them out of it. You do not hate these people, Lord. You, you're showing them the ruthlessness of sin and, and the grace that you have for them, that they can be turned from, from this. They can turn from destruction. And I pray that you would call them to yourself, that you would cause people to be born again. And I pray that for each one of us believers here, that we will be your assistants in this. Do you need us? Obviously not. You are God, but you choose to use us. And we're so thankful for that. May we be vessels ready to be used for the advancement of your kingdom in the communities in which we find ourselves. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've saved us. We thank you that you have turned us from error to truth, from idolatry to the living God, from disregarding the natural order to enjoying what you have for us in the natural order. But all of that pales into comparison of us knowing you, being in relationship with you. And you have provided that for us through your son. We lift him up this morning. We pray that he would be glorified. We pray that our hearts would be refreshed and that we would leave here different people because of your word. And I pray that your word would be first and foremost in these people's lives, that they would make that a priority to know it so they can keep rooting out little little alcoves of bad thinking that we have and that we could think properly. Father, we love you. We can only love you because you first loved us. We pray all of this in your son's matchless name. Amen.